All right, children, I'm going to read the first half of an old adage you're saying, okay? And I want you to finish it, okay? I'm going to say the first half, and you're going to say the second. I'm not, we're not going to try to do this in unison. We're just going to, I'm going to say the first half, you just say the second, all right? You ready? Sticks and stones may break my bones. All right, I, I heard some adults in there. Wasn't just the children, right? All right, good. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Now, here's the second one, all right? We're going to do this again, and moms and dads, you can, uh, you can join in since you didn't have permission the first time. You have permission this time. Um, I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. Very good. All right, there are phrases I was going to say that we all know, apparently not. Um, there are phrases many of us know, right? We've heard them before. Uh, they're phrases that we've, we've made, those of us who know them, uh, have used before, uh, more than likely on playgrounds at some point. And we said them in response um, to others who called us a name or maybe said something negative to us or about us. And we said it to communicate that we weren't really affected by what they said. Right? We, didn't, we didn't care what they said. Um, and we said that because, right, they, they could say whatever they wanted because they were just words. Unfortunately, neither statement is true. Never has been true. Because words matter. Uh, words matter and words can hurt. And they stick to us, whether we want to admit it or not. They stick to us for a long time. Sticks and stones create bruises. They may break bones, but bruises go away in a week or so. And bones that have been broken actually become stronger at that point that they're broken. But the damage inflicted by the tongue tends to be deeper, tends to be more painful, tends to last a little longer and take longer to heal. The wounds left by our words and the words of others tend to reopen, right? And they begin bleeding again. They become infected. And the damage is more widespread than sticks and stones because the words that we hear affect what we think, and what, what we think affects how we feel, and how we feel affects what we do. It affects our actions and how we behave. In the book, the ladies read this past month and discussed last Friday night, uh, it was a book entitled Taming the Tongue by Pastor James Robinson. And in his introduction, he said this, it's been estimated that the average human being utters between 10,000 and 20,000 words per day. Consider that fact in light of Solomon's words in Proverbs 10:19. when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his, lip, restrains his lips is prudent. So if the average person speaks between 10,000 and 20,000 words each day, he says, then we're looking at 10,000 to 20,000 opportunities to sin. 
We all have different temperaments. Some of us talk all the time. He said that, not me. Others, not so much. But we talk. But we all... And that's what James is going to do tonight in chapter 3. He's going to confront us. He says the issues regarding the tongue don't just happen on the playground. They don't just happen at work. Uh, They don't just happen in the home. They can even happen in the church. And they often do. He says, if we summarize what we've covered the first two chapters, he's basically saying that we who have been brought to life by the Word and have had that living Word implanted within us, we who have been saved, uh, or we who are should be hearers, or not just hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word, right? We who are doers of the Word and not hearers only. Uh, We who have been saved by grace alone through an active faith that isn't alone. Uh, We who have been saved not by our faith and our good works, but we've been saved uh, by faith alone for good works. Uh, We all should work diligently to guard our tongues. He said, we, uh, he says, we're going to have a hard time doing that. We all need to tame our tongues, right? Not just guard them, but tame them. And he says, we're going to have a hard time doing that. He actually says, no one can do it. His specific words are, no human being can tame the tongue. But he also says that while we're unable to do it, We are no less responsible, having been united to Christ, to try anyway by God's grace and for His glory to do so. And of course, we know that we can't do that apart from His Spirit. We're going to do, uh, or we're going to look at chapter 3. We're going to break it down into three points. We're going to look at the power of the tongue in verses 1 to 4. We're going to look at the problems of the tongue in verses 5 to 12. And then we're going to look at the prescription of the tongue in verses 13 to 18. You're going to find that bu- um, outline in the normal place in the back of the bulletin, and children, you'll find your words in the normal place as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, please grant power to the preaching of your Word this evening as we always ask. Grant us the ability to appraise and apprehend your truth. Awaken our attention and open our sorrows and convict us and challenge us, and then Please refresh us and encourage us and comfort us through the gospel. As always, I'm weak and needy and unfit for this task to which you've called me, and so I'm in need of your spirit to fill me, and I'm in need of your grace that I might do something good for you this evening. So grant me fluency and fervency. Grant me grace. And I pray all these things for the sake of Christ and His church. Amen. So let's begin. I hope you still have your Bibles open. Let's look at the power of the tongue in verses 1 to 4. James is obviously transitioning into a new point. He's making that abundantly clear, but he's remaining within the range of topics that he introduced in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. And he's placing all of these things under the major heading of doing the Word. The encouragement has been and will continue to be to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. And he's fleshing that out. What does that look like, practically speaking? And how he introduces this topic may seem a little odd. It may even seem to be a little random until we consider the context. 
which we've tried to do all along, is, is keep this in the context. And we, re, we need to remember that he is dealing with current issues that are arising, being uh, within the churches uh, that are growing and in some cases being uh, planted or established throughout Palestine and beyond due to the dispersion, right? Due to the uh, Jewish Christians who are being dispersed uh, due to persecution. And we learned, if you remember, and if you weren't with us, uh, this, is a, this will be a little uh, summary, but we learned in chapters 1 and 2 that there was an issue that he was addressing with some who were listening to the Word being read and taught and preached, but weren't acting on what they were hearing. Um, they were professing their faith in Christ, uh, but there was no evidence of fruit whatsoever. Uh, there was no evidence that their faith was alive and working. Uh, their faith appeared to be nothing more than head knowledge, and it was just, it had become a cold, a dead orthodoxy. Um, and their actions were betraying them, right? Their faith was useless. They were claiming to be wise, but they were actually lacking in wisdom. They were at, lacking specifically in godly wisdom, and they were unstable, and they were double-minded, right? Not necessarily two-faced, but looking in two directions, vacillating between following Christ and following the ways of the world. We also learned in chapter 2 that there was an issue regarding playing favorites and showing partiality. They were showing partiality toward some and they were discriminating toward others based upon uh, external or outward appearances, particularly in the, particularly in the areas of uh, socioeconomic standing. And they were being partial toward the rich discriminating against the poor. They were being partial toward the well-to-do, those of higher standing, those of a better economic standing and, and, and a part of a, um, a higher economic class, and those who were experiencing public, or public prestige based upon their status, while they were discriminating against the less fortunate, looking down their noses at those who didn't have as, um, they weren't as well off. And really, they were looking down their noses at those who couldn't help them, right? They couldn't help them move up the ladder, the social ladder, into positions of power and prominence. So with all that background or context, I believe it's well within the realm of possibility that they were, there were those within the churches who were not only playing favorites, but they were also, you know, in showing partiality to the rich, but they were also seeking positions that would put them in places or in circles that were considered prestigious. And one of the ways to do that would have been to seek to teach. Listen to these words from Douglas Moo. He says, teachers were prominent in the life of the early church from the beginning. The office of teacher was roughly the equivalent of the rabbi in the Jewish community. The teacher in, early Christian, in the early Christian church would have, been, or would have had considerable prestige, particularly in a society where few people could read and where people in the lower classes had fewer opportunities for advancement and status. So they were seeking that which they were looking to and, and showing favorites toward, right? They, they were showing favorites toward those to whom they wanted you know, they wanted to associate with and be like. And so the problem may have been that they were seeking, those that were seeking the positions were new converts. That's very possible. But even if they weren't, verse 13 seems to indicate that they weren't qualified to fill the position of teacher based on a lack of knowledge and a lack of wisdom and a lack of morals. They're, they're basically were those that weren't fit to teach. 
And so James says, look, brothers, stop being teachers. Many of you have no business being teachers. And then he gives the answer, or gives you know, the question, well, why not? And he answers, he says, because those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. He says, you guys are basically setting yourself up for a fall. The bottom line is, due to the importance of what they were communicating, and due to their responsibility for the spiritual welfare of those who were listening to them, and what was being taught, what teachers said and say behind pulpits and behind lecterns, as well as what they say when they come out from behind their pulpits and lecterns, will receive a greater examination from the Lord. The words they speak when teaching need to be true. And the words that they speak when they come out from behind their pulpits and lecterns need to reinforce rather than contradict and undermine that which they've taught. Because if they don't, if they don't do those things, they're leading others astray. They're leading Christ's sheep astray. So being teachers means using more words. And using more words means an increased opportunity to sin. And increased opportunities to sin means putting themselves in a greater danger of judgment. Now, let's make this really practical and relevant tonight, okay? At the end of the sermon tonight, everybody in this room is going to be accountable from that point forward to put in practice that which they've heard. You've been told what is right, and you will be accountable for being a good steward of the truth that has been given to you. But my accountability will be greater, and my judgment more strict, having been been the one that has taught. And I think you know I take that, or I do not take that lightly. Well, in verse 2, James broadens his focus to address everyone in the congregation because he says teachers aren't the only ones, right? Teachers aren't the only ones who struggle with bridling their tongue. Everyone does. No one is immune. Because if anyone did speak perfectly, they would be doing everything perfectly. If If they spoke perfectly, they would behave perfectly because... It's harder to bridle the tongue than it is to do anything else. And so it's obvious that controlling the tongue would lead to controlling the rest of the body. And James understood that while we have a responsibility to tame our tongues, he also knows nobody does it. Nobody does it perfectly. But no matter how much we struggle, we all need to continue to try. He's laying out... This, this burden for us and says we need to continue to try. And in order for us to, to give it our best shot and, and, and work at that and strive toward that, He wants us to understand what we're up against. He wants to give us a, our best opportunities to succeed. And so He shares in verses 3 and 4 exactly what's going on. He says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, 
we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are, no, are, are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. And those of you who have ridden horses or been on boats, particularly sailboats, understand exactly what he's talking about. The size of the horse and the size of the boat are exponentially larger and greater and overwhelmingly greater than the, the bit or the rudder that actually controls them. Those that are larger th- objects are controlled, an animal and an object are controlled by that which is smaller. And then the first part of verse 5, he says, so also the tongue. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. His point is, is obvious, the tongue being very small, but being small, we should not underestimate it at all. Right? The power it possesses should not be underestimated. It may seem in, insignificant, but it has the power to direct our lives. And that direction will be determined based upon whether our tongues are disciplined or undisciplined, controlled or out of control, positive or negative, because they can be used, our tongues can be used for positive as well as negative or, or good and, and evil. It can, the, the tongues can build up and they can tear down. They can bless and they can curse. Which leads us to the second half, or to our second point of the problems with the tongue in the second half of verse 5 through 12. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. James doesn't mince words. If you saw the news this week, you saw that there was a fire in Balt Spring, Texas, and it burned 26 buildings, including um, nine homes at the cost of about $6 million, and it all started from the spark of a lawnmower. And you history buffs know that the fire in Chicago of 1871 destroyed 17,000 buildings, killed 300 people, and left 100,000 homeless. And while they never did actually pinpoint its, how it started, um, they at least know the first building to go down was a, sh- a small shed outside the O'Leary's barn. And this is exactly what James is talking about. Right, the devastation that's created by the tongue. A small spark sets everything ablaze. It sets lives on fire. It's used by Satan to ruin reputations, to destroy lives, to create division in relationships, and to defile us spiritually and emotionally. And whether it be through gossip or slander or name-calling, lies, flattery, arrogant boasting, grumbling, complaining, rumors, sarcasm, it all wreaks havoc in the lives of people. It leaves a path of destruction in the lives of individuals, families, and again, even churches. As one commentator said, the tongue becomes the conduit by which all the evil of the world around us comes to expression in us. And in the words of John Calvin, the tongue is a slender portion of flesh that contains the whole world of iniquity. 
And the news doesn't get any better. In verses 7 and 8, James says it can't be tamed, at least not by man. He says, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, every kind can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. We have the ability as human beings to exercise dominion over every animal in creation, but we can't tame the tongue. And we ask why? Why is it so difficult? And Jesus actually answers the question for us in Matthew 15. He said, what comes out of the mouth defiles a person. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. We can't tame the tongue because it simply reveals the sin that's in our hearts. An old friend of mine once said, we're like a tube of toothpaste. And when we're squeezed, what's inside comes out. The tongue's a means by which we audibly hear what is hidden deep within us that we don't want anyone to see and that we don't want anyone to know, including ourselves, exists. Yes, we re- when we repent of our sin and turn in faith to Christ, we are freed from the bondage to sin and its power, but not its presence. And its vile and deadly nature is revealed through what we say. It's revealed through our tongues. James says it's full of de- our, our tongues are full of deadly poison which means they have the ability to cause extreme harm. They strike like asps, to use the language from Psalm 140 and Romans 3. The word that, in verse 8 there, that's translated restless is the same word that's translated unstable in verse 8 of chapter 1. James' point is that the tongue is never at peace. It's double-minded. It's double-minded due to the sin that remains within us. And he elaborates on that instability and that double-mindedness in verses 9 and 10. He says, we bless our Lord and Father, and then with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth, he says, come blessing and cursing. Because we've been brought to life by the Word, right, that living Word, and because that Word has been planted within us, we are able to praise and bless God, something we would not be able to do apart from His work within us. But due to the sin that remains within us, we simultaneously curse those made in His image. Just saying it out loud should bother us. In other words, we're constantly talking out of both sides of our mouth. We bless God and we curse people. We bless the Creator, we curse His creation. 
And as one commentator point out, pointed out, blessing or praising God is one of the most important and positive forms of human speech. Therefore, cursing others must be one of the least important and negative forms. If praising God is one of the highest forms of speech, cursing people is one of the lowest. And unfortunately, that inconsistency and that double-mindedness and that instability reveals the inconsistency and instability of our faith. It reveals our desire at times to please both God and man. It gives evidence of the war that's being waged within us, between the, within the contradiction of the spirit and the flesh. It reveals that we desire both the things of God and the things of man and the things of heaven and the things of earth and that constant back and forth. And James says very matter-of-factly, my brothers, this ought not be. It shouldn't be that way. And his illustrations couldn't be any more clear. Right? A spring is not going to produce both fresh and salt water. A fig tree is not going to produce olives, and an olive, you know, a grapevine is not going to produce figs, and a freshwater pond is not going to produce salt water. So our tongues shouldn't be producing both praise and adoration for God and vile, venomous poison toward our brothers and sisters in the faith and even our neighbor. Because we've all been created in the image of God. So what do we do if that duplicity ought not be? Do we just throw up our hands? Not going to try. Do we just give in and let the words fly just whenever we feel like it? Do we just give in to that sin that so easily entangles us and, and start those fires and devastate lives? James says no. Because there's hope. And he provides the prescription in verses 13 to 18. And he says, you know, if you want to prove how wise and understanding you are, before you take up teaching, simply humble yourselves and seek to be doers of the Word. Humble yourselves and seek to exhibit the good works for which you've been saved. And that begins, he says, if you remember back in chapter 1, that begins, and he's reiterating it here, that begins by seeking wisdom, by seeking godly wisdom. Right? And we've already said wisdom is a gift from God. And the personification of wisdom is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, as we said, the greatest and most perfect gift that has come down from the Father of lights. He's the embodiment of truth and wisdom. Wisdom of God, both media. In the words of Nancy Guthrie, she said, In Jesus, we were given the wisdom of God, both mediated to us as a gift and lived out before us in perfection. Therefore, we should humble ourselves before Him. 
We should bow our knees before Him and, and rely on the Spirit, His Spirit that has been given to us. The Spirit that resides within us, the Spirit that has sealed us. And we must exercise the wisdom that we already have, but also look to Him for the wisdom we must have to fuel the taming of our tongues. And in verses 14 to 18, he says, look, if you want to know whether you're seeking godly wisdom or worldly wisdom, all you have to do is look at, look at the evidence. Because the lives of those exercising godly wisdom and the lives that are exercising worldly wisdom are vastly different. Those who are looking to Christ and those who are looking elsewhere to anything and anyone other than Him are going to have vastly different uh, lives that, that are, are put on display. For example, he says in verses 14 and 15, if your behavior is characterized by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, uh, in which you're only interested in your own welfare and, and what's good for you and yourself rather than others, or you're critical and insensitive toward others because you see everyone as a rival that must be defeated for your agenda to move forward, or if you're continually posturing and positioning yourself to be on the right or winning side, or you see every disagreement, not as a battle between right and wrong, but as a battle between good and evil, and you demonize those who disagree with you, or if you manipulate people and outcomes for your own ends and your own personal benefit, seeking, rather than seeking the good of others and the good of the whole, or if, if you're orienting yourself around yourself and around your sin, then you're following the wisdom of the world. And you need to stop boasting. He says it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. In other words, it's wisdom that follows the world, the flesh, and Satan who are all enemies of God. But in verses 16 to 17, he says, look, if your behavior is not perfectly but consistently characterized by purity or innocence and moral blamelessness, peace and harmony between others, gentle consideration of others, an openness to reason, a willingness to yield to and submit to others, mercy and love of neighbor, a genuine faith that works, impartiality, sincerity or lack of hypocrisy, trustworthiness, stability, and transparency, then you're following the wisdom of God. You say, well, how do, how do we know that that's the wisdom of God? Well, as I'm reading that, you probably were, were, were taken back maybe to Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes, or Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, very similar lists there. But most important, as we read through that second list, we're reminded of the Lord Jesus, who was the perfect example of all of them. Right? Christ was the perfect example of what it means to be peaceable and gentle and open to reason, and full of mercy, and good fruits, and impartiality, and sincerity. So the only way to exhibit these qualities is to be united to Him. 
It's through our union with Him that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You know, our tongues betray us. They reveal the depth of our depravity, and, and we do a lot of damage with them. We can be cruel and demeaning. We can be flippant and sarcastic. We can be caustic and abrasive. We can lie and gossip and flatter and slander and defame. We can belittle and bemoan and grumble and complain. And we can do all of that thoughtlessly or we can do it intentionally and even maliciously. We can break hearts, we can ruin reputations, we can sever relationships and divide congregations. The damage is beyond what we can imagine and the damage we've done is beyond what we ever want to admit. And being so deadly, James calls us to strive to tame our tongues as as our taming might be. And how do we do that? Well, for starters, we need to repent. <laughs> we need to repent of that sin within us that so easily entangles us and comes out through our tongues. We need to remember that what's impossible with man is possible with God. We can't do it in and of ourselves, but we can do it because we've been united to Christ and because the Spirit dwells within us. It is by His power and His grace that we can strive forward, striving and resting all the way. We must continually to seek Christ who is our wisdom and look to Him in all respects, asking for the strength to do what He's called us to do. And we must remember that everyone we speak to and and who listens to what we say and reads what we write, they're all divine image bearers of God. Every one of them. And they're deserving of blessing, not cursing. We must strive to be kind and complimentary and polite and gracious and sincere and grateful and encouraging. We need to seek to rejoice in and proclaim the truth and tell the truth. We need to bless and extol, and praise, and esteem, and honor, and respect, and build up those around us. Just hit me a song we used to sing with our kids, encourage, us, encourage one another, and build each other up, for this is right. And finally, we must be continually mindful of the fact that that the Lord Jesus, who never spoke a crossword or built himself up at the expense of someone else, or tore someone down that he might be lifted up, died for our every thought, whisper, word, it was spoken, yelled, written, tweeted, and blogged.
And his, thanks be to God, his perfect speaking record has been imputed to us. And having been the recipients of so much grace and mercy, how can we not extend grace and mercy to others? Having been blessed, how can we not bless others out of the abundance that is ours? How can we not bless the Lord and bless one another and bless our neighbor? May we rely upon His Spirit and strive toward and then and rest, strive and rest in the taming of our tongues and display the genuineness of our faith as we seek to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive this word with faith and love and lay it up on our hearts and practice it in our lives? Bless those who have heard your word preached and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. In Christ's name and for his sake, I pray these things. Amen.